It is um, unescapable to most of us, if you've uh, been tuned into the radio or TV or uh, listening to media at all, to not know what this day is and what it means, the uh, 10th anniversary of the uh, terror attack, um, one of a series, the most horrific of a series of attacks that had been conducted against the assets of the United States in the, in the buildup of the of the war on terror. Um, and we have chosen not to make a, it the centerpiece of our service uh, this morning for a couple of reasons. But, but principally, I think, for me at least, because I want to tease out a difference between remembering and remembrance. Remembering and remembrance. What we are being invited into by the popular media who is not very good at remembrance is remembering. So the images play endlessly in the, the same ones that we have seen and, and have respected and uh, attended to um, uh, of, the, of the events of the morning and the days that, that, that followed. But remembering what happened is not the same thing as living in remembrance. And what ends up happening by being told how to remember, which inevitably happens when we replay the tapes over and over and over again, is that we're never given a chance to turn our remembering into remembrance by means of honor, by means of the life that flows out, not of remembering, but of remembrance. The reason is straightforward. Remembering, as you have already had your minds, as mine has been imprinted, is conditioned by the events that come to us at the, at, at the other side. But remembrance is a work of the heart. Remembrance is a way of saying, I get the images, I get the stories, I, I feel to the degree that I'm able the tragedy. And for many of us, it, it, it was at a distance. It was at a distance. And even though it was our land, our nation, it was nonetheless still at distance. And so, how do I enter into something that I have not experienced? And then, often, if we're not careful, we're taught what kinds of emotions we should generate in response to the images, in response to the ideas. Remembrance works very differently. It acknowledges the horror. It acknowledges the story. It, 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 it gets the picture, but it doesn't get stuck and stopped there. It moves on, and for those of us, especially who are disciples of Jesus, it allows us opportunity to honor those whose lives have been lost and permanently altered by the tragedies, but also to say to the world that we live in, we are not without hope in the world. Remembrance is a way of saying we don't just have to remember. We can remember with hope. That's with honor, with um, a, a, a renewed focus. So, 
I want to, to the degree, it, it's, it's the difference between watching over and over and over again the, 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 the footage of a fatal accident versus remembering the lives of those who were lost in a way that honors them in the way that we live our lives now. Do, do you feel the difference? It's like I can pull my wedding video out, and sadly it was in the 70s, so... <laughs> I don't do that often. Uh, but reliving the events of April 30th, 1977, makes not one bit more real the marriage that Judy and I have 35 years later. Remembering isn't remember. In fact, do you see how sometimes remembering gets in the way of remembrance? We are being, we are being assaulted by remembering in the last few days. And what remembrance required is just to close ourselves off from remembering and be still and live honoring those whose lives have been lost by living our lives wisely and well and with hope. Because that's what we're here for, isn't it? We're ambassadors. We're representatives of the kingdom that has come to a world just like this world. Um, the question is asked regularly, especially now as we ramp up into the presidential campaign, do you feel safe? Do you feel safer? What kind of a question is that? That has nothing to do with whether we are safe or not. It's a matter of perception. Do I feel safer when I go through two hours worth of checks at the, at the um, airport? About as safe as I felt on September 10th. Do, do, you, do you see? So I don't want to get caught up in the politics of remembering. I want to be an ambassador of remembrance, of hope of expectation of a kingdom that has come and is coming. I want to live as a representative of that kind of kingdom. So what I'd like to do is just, before we get into the word here, is just give you a few seconds, just a few minutes of stillness and invite you to take some of the images that have been given to us uh, and... and See if you can see how you can be taking those images, set them aside, and become an agent of remembrance instead. An agent of honor, an agent of hope, a representative of a kingdom that's coming. Because that's what our world needs now more than ever before. And that is the best way to remember with honor. Father, we do want to lift up the lives of those men and women whose histories have been and futures have been unalterably changed as a result of the events of ten years ago. Nations, individuals, families whose loved ones were lost. 
I pray, O Lord, that they won't be crippled by remembering, but would be empowered in remembrance. And I pray for us as a nation, I pray for us as a church, I pray for us as individuals, that we will be, in the face of a world run increasingly by terror, ambassadors of vibrant hope, pushing back against the anxieties of the things that go bump in the night with a calm confidence that we are Easter people. We are resurrection people. We are people of hope. Help us to live that way, even tomorrow morning, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, Darren said we're continuing in our series of Mark in Mark, so if you've got your Bibles, please feel free to open up uh, to the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 10. We've got a few copies around the sides. If anybody needs one, uh, would you mind just uh, sticking up your hand and we'll make sure that we get one to you. Uh, maybe if you're there, if I can get some uh, folks over on this side uh, to distribute those for me. Thank you so much. We've got some, yeah, Pete over there. That would be great. Thank you. Um, we are on, if you're using this version of it, we're on page 822. Uh, if, uh, if not, regardless, we're in, in Mark chapter 10, uh, and we'll begin at verse 1. Uh, Darren has, has led us through uh, this, this conversation over the last couple of weeks uh, about the tension uh, that, that Jesus and his disciples are working through in terms of, 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 of living at the, at the center, and this story gets us there uh, more fully. You'll notice again that location matters, so just brief geography lesson. Jesus has been up north again in Capernaum, but now he is increasingly going to be making forays into the area of Jerusalem, which is going to get him into the center of attention for the, the Pharisees and the, and the rabbinic scholars and teachers um, uh, in Jerusalem, which will eventuate in his death. So it's, it's this, this kind of push-pull where Jesus uh, is, is going to be um, riding the wave uh, uh, that will eventuate in his death and following that, his resurrection. Uh, but he can't uh, uh, get that pot boiling too quickly. So he's been up north. Now he comes down, it says in verse 1, he left that place, Capernaum, and went uh, to the region of Judea, down south near Jerusalem, but on the east side of Jordan, and the crowds again gathered around him, and as was his custom, he again taught them. Now, some Pharisees came, and to test him they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, Well, what did Moses command you? They said, Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. Jesus said to them, Well, that's because of the hardness of the heart that he wrote this command for you. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband 
and marries another, she commits adultery. This is a, um, a, a teaching that Jesus is, is using and I'm going to use to expand beyond. Obviously, it's about marriage and divorce and so on and so forth. But I want to expand that and, and, and invite you to consider what Jesus is up to here. Uh, and how uh, we need to maybe to hear that, whether it, the issue of divorce or remarriage is germane to us directly or not, the nature of what God had in mind when he invented marriage, whether that's focused on us or not, uh, or, or the, whether there's a, a broader uh, implication of this. So Jesus is coming into the south uh, and now is under the radar screen of the headquarters, if you will, of the Pharisees. And remember, their job is to authenticate... Uh, teachers, so rabbis coming out of the desert uh, ought not have carte blanche to go out and speak anything they want, gather however many disciples they want. Somebody needs to be examining these guys and making sure they're not fruitcakes leading people into the stray into a, in, into a battle that they're going to lose and messing it up for the rest of us. And because the, the Pharisees believed that God was on the move, that Messiah was coming, that it was critical, therefore that we be prepared and ready for the coming of Messiah. So they wanted to both verify that this guy wasn't Messiah, or was, but then also to, to, to figure out where any given rabbi fit into the framework of their understanding. And one of the ways they did this was a simple rabbinic technique of asking questions. And what you've got here is, is, the, is one of the main questions they would ask. They would ask a question for specifically here. They would talk about Sabbath. They would talk about dietary laws and so on. But the rule of Sabbath, excuse me, the rule about divorce was one of the ones where the rabbis themselves, especially the Pharisees, were in hot contention. So they are saying to Jesus, help us out here. Where do you fit in the continuum of understanding about marriage and divorce? Uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, before we get into this with any great degree of detail, please remember that this was not written to you. This was written by Mark to a church in Rome 2,000 years ago. Now, what does that mean? What that means is, before we can figure out what it means to us, we have to first figure out what it meant to them. Because it was God's word to them not God's word to us. You, you with me on that? That's really important. Because otherwise, what we're going to do is we're going to take chunks of Scripture like this, kind of rip it out of its context and say, see, this is how we're supposed to behave. This is how we're supposed to live. This is what we're supposed to do. Jesus said so. Not paying attention at all to what Jesus might actually be saying or what He might actually be doing in this passage. That... So I, I want to kind of lay that groundwork first. So the question was, what, um, is it lawful for a man to divorce his, his wife? Now, now, Jesus here is not dumb. Can, everybody okay with Jesus not being dumb? He's really smart. He catches on immediately as to what's going on and decides that he is going to play with this a little bit. And so he says to them, well... What did Moses command you? Now, Jesus knows that Moses commanded nothing concerning divorce. Nothing. There are four verses in the entire books of Moses, the entire Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Four verses 
that even address the topic of divorce. Just four. And they don't address the topic of divorce directly. It's a case law. What if a man marries a woman, finds something unseemly, technical term, in her, and divorces her? She marries another who then divorces her. Is it appropriate, this was the whole thing, four verses, for husband number one to marry her after having been divorced by husband number two? Genesis, uh, Exodus, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. That's, and by the way, Moses says, no. That's not appropriate. Okay. And, but from those four verses, you see how we have this Rube Goldberg kind of machinery that gets built as to what is an appropriate foundation for the dissolution of a marriage. Now, I need you to understand something. Notice in the, in the way the Pharisees ask the question, who's missing as an item of concern in the question? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Who's missing as an object of concern? The wife. And that is part of the clue that we have for what Jesus is up to here. By the way, also for Moses. Um, divorce in those days, Moses' day particularly, and Jesus' day to a lesser degree, although it was pretty bad, was simply a matter of saying to your wife, I'm no longer married to you, I divorce you. You kind of put her out on the tr curb with the trash and away you go. You're ready to go. This, by the way, is how many Pharisees avoided adultery. They just divorced wife number two so they could sleep with wife number three or four or five. So the scenario that Jesus is presented, remember a guy has seven wives, or excuse me, a woman has seven husbands. That's not, that's not hypothetical in that question. So, but do you see what happens? when? when so Moses is saying, first of all, you don't just set her out with the trash. At least give her a piece of paper that lets people know that she is legitimate. Because in that culture, a woman had no identity or rights as, except as attached to a husband or to a father. And if she was just out on the, on the curb without a certificate of divorce, it was as if she were in Arizona without a green card. You with me? She had no legal standing in the culture. She had no personal identity. Her identity attached to husband or father was gone. What was a resource available to her in that culture? And often then you will see women resorting to adult, to prostitution and to various other ways simply to pay the bills and feed their kids because they were treated as property, right? So Moses says, at the very least, give her a certificate so there is legitimacy to her identity in the culture. Jesus, on the other hand, is saying, well, let's play around with this for a little bit. What did Moses command you to do? Was Moses commanding divorce here? No. He is, at the very most, permitting it. Now, why might Moses permit divorce? Let's be clear, boys and girls. It's because of the hardness of your heart. It's because you don't get marriage and you think 
that by defining divorce, you will understand marriage. Memo to self. You don't understand marriage by defining the conditions under which you can end it. Any more than you define driving down the center of the road by avoiding the ditch. You don't do that. It won't work. And this, of course, is the point that Jesus is wanting to make here. If you want to live life defined by the edges, you will constantly be roller skating at 80 miles an hour towards the cliff. That's just the way it works. Right? Don't think of a pink elephant. That's how it works. Right? You, you, have, you, have, you have the boundaries. You have the board. Here's another idea, Jesus says. Why don't we pay attention to what God had in mind when he invented marriage in the first place? So he says, this is what it was like from the beginning. First, and he quotes two passages. Please notice, both of them from Genesis chapter 1 in the first case, chapter 2 in the second case, which trumps the passage in Deuteronomy. Because as a rabbi, the further back that you could trace your teaching the more authority that teaching had. So these four verses are in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Jesus is going all the way back. Where am I going to hit here? All the way back to Genesis chapter 1. You can't get back further than that. Right? And So what did God have in mind when He invented human beings, male and female, in the first place? What did He have in mind when He invented marriage in the first place? And just a quick snapshot. He says, first of all, Please notice, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. God made them male and female. Who was the them? The them was humanity. God's intent from the beginning has been a collaborative, cooperative, mutually supportive, mutually beneficial company of beings neither of which has authority or power over the other one. That's what God intended at the beginning. He, you'll notice here that God did not give dominion of male over female, but of male and female in collaborative, cooperative relationship over the rest of the planet. Right? His image is represented not in maleness, not in femaleness, but in male and female. It takes every member of the human community to adequately represent God on the planet. We are His image. Which is why it's important that every single one of us flourish in who God called and created us to be. Because when you don't, some part of the image is compromised by your failing to show up for work. Do you see? So when I use this passage as I do for pre-marriage counseling, one of the things that I want to point out to a couple that we, we, we talk through this is that God's intent for your marriage is that you both mind your own business. That you, husband, be fully yourself as beloved in Christ. That you, wife, be fully yourself as beloved in Christ. That you not make the other your business. And that you choose out of wholeness to walk in collaborative, cooperative community without exercising dominion or authority over one another. And in fact, one of the clues that your marriage will have moved from what God intended is when one or the other of you tries 
to exercise power or authority over the other. Because God intended male and female from the beginning. How are you all doing? Okay. Then Jesus goes on and says, here's how this works. A man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife and the two of them shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two but now one flesh. What in the world is that about? You recognize the quote from Genesis chapter 2 verse, I think about 23, 24, somewhere in there, right? Where, where, where we've gone through this whole wonderful story of God's creating a man and then discovering uh, this isn't good. This doesn't work. This is non-operational. We need to make a helper that's appropriate to him and trying out the animals. That doesn't work. Uh, and, and then discovering uh, we need to... And, he, and, and the Hebrew literally says he removes a side. Most of the translations say rib, which is technically accurate, but more frequently it's used to talk about a side. God removes a side from the man and forms into a woman the side which he had taken. What do you have now? Two permanently incomplete beings that when brought together make one. You see? This is what God's intent is. When, 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 when we get this ball rolling, and please notice how what Jesus is doing here is undermining the question of permission. Do you see? This is, this is his, his, his strategy. So as you, and, and, and in order for that to take place, and I love this little side thing is that Moses and Jesus both do. This is why, guys, a man has to leave home. Mama is no longer the most important woman in his life. Do you see? Do you see? And, and why doesn't it say women have to leave father and mother? Because that was assumed in the culture. But what was happening is that women were leaving their homes and simply joining husbands' homes with attachment to their family. And Moses and Jesus are both saying, this doesn't work. This is dysfunctional. If you have a cell that has not properly divided from its host body, hello, hello, um, it, it has lacks it, it lacks capacity to be healthfully joined to a new body. So J Moses says, your capacity to be one is compromised to the degree to which you have not left home. Does that make sense? It's, it's one of the first questions I asked when I talked to a couple yesterday, even uh, in terms of pre-marriage counseling. Because they want to get married, so we're doing pre-engagement stuff right now with them and just kind of make sure you've asked the right questions. Because once you say yes, the ante is way up there. You know, um, it, It's not quite as high as when you say I do, but it's, it's, it, it's getting up there. So, so let's, let's ask the hard questions and have the hard conversations and let's duke it out and fight before you say yes. Because, you know, you don't have quite so much skin in the game. Okay, good. You can tell I'm not really good at this stuff. So they, but anyway, um, my job is to break people up. I figure if I can talk you out of marriage, you probably shouldn't be married. Just, just saying. So, so anyway, um, so, so one of the first questions is, um, how are each of you doing, and how do you think each other is doing at leaving home? 
Oh, I've lived on my own for like five years. Yeah, I went away to college. And so. Question, who pays your cell bill? Daddy, you haven't left home. Who's doing your car payment? Well, you know, I got student loans. Okay, well, as soon as you get left home, then we can talk. Now, why does that... You know, I'm not that... Well, yeah, I am. You know, I don't, I don't want to be mean, but I want to say to people, look, this is not playing house. This isn't Barbie and Ken. What has your dating relationship taught you about the other? Which then tends to reveal another series of problems that we have in North America particularly. We don't understand what dating is about. It's about going to the movies and finding out if we're compatible. You're not compatible. If one of you is a man and one of you is a woman, you're not compatible. I mean, right? Can I get a witness? Come on, you guys. Right? So now, what do we do with that? Well, I've got to figure out how to live with somebody who's not me. Right? So work out all the roommate stuff before you get serious with somebody. For God's sake, both hers and yours, don't leave your mama's home and move in with your husband or wife. Go through a roommate or two or three. You know, discover that not everybody does life normal the way you do. You're normal and everybody else is normal. Not the same. Right? So work all that. And then, and then, and then, and then work on the five core intimacies that create an adequate foundation for a lifetime of marriage. And they are social, intellectual, emotional, physical, and spiritual. It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. God took the dust of the earth breathed into it the breath of life, physical and spiritual. Two primary ways that we are intimate with other persons, flowing out of those, emotional, social, and intellectual. That's what dating is about. Can I live with somebody like this? I don't need to change her. I don't want her to be different or him to be different. I just want to know, can I live with this? Because I'm going to discover between five and ten irreconcilable differences. Stuff, Judy and I, 35 years, things that bugged me today about her, bugged me 35 years ago. <laughs> now, what am I going to do with that? Do you see? And I finally come to the conclusion that God gave me the wife he gave me because he doesn't like me very No, no. <laughs> he gave... And he really hates her. I'm just saying. No. <laughs> no. What is the goal of marriage? Happy marriage? No. Christ-like, transformative intimacy in a culture that knows nothing about it. That's why. That's why we're married. And this is, of course, what Jesus is saying. Guys, if you're going to be arguing about divorce, the game's over. We're not even talking about the same thing anymore. Push come to shove? This is what God intended. Do you want to play by His rule? Or do you want to fudge at the edges? Because if you do that, and you get good at it, you won't get good at this. Do, do you see? And th this, is a, this is a critical thing. And, but at the same time, the disciples, the wheels are already spinning. Because, well, wait a minute, that means, I mean, if this is true... 
then I've got to devote myself, I've got to commit myself, I've got to work, whether I feel like it or not, to the person with whom I have made commitment, even though I didn't know what I was doing. By the way, nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody knows. I st- you know, you stand there in your nice suit and everything, a beautiful day, violins maybe, you know. I do. Well, what will you do? <laughs> and for how long will you do it? Do you see? And nobody ever says, I'm going to give it a shot. Nobody ever says that. But the divorce rate right now in the state of California of all first-time marriages is about 35%. One out of three are history. So something's going sideways here. Why, doesn't, why don't we say that the garden is going to be a place in which marriages flourish and we don't have to worry about the edges? Where we can embrace people who have been damaged, broken, and ruined by the selfishness of others that have set them aside we can bring them into a community and say it's safe for you to be loved here. Do you see? This is what Jesus is after. The disciples get, however, what he's talking about. And, and, and they've already learned we're not going to ask him anything more in public. Because he's going to sweep the floor with us if we do. So notice what happens in verse 10. They come into the house, so it's just them now. I love this. And the disciples asked him again about this matter. Apparently, he wasn't clear enough for them. He says, you really want to know where the center is? You really want to know where this is going? Here's what it comes down to. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Please notice, who is it that is now committing adultery and in violation of the center of the heart of God? It's not the one who's been set aside. It's the one who's done the setting aside. Who is Jesus protecting in this word? The weakest and the most vulnerable. The victim. Which sets us up for where Darren's going to go next week. But I need you to sit with this for a second. Because I I recognize in our community here that there are, 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 are folks who have... Have, have either either in your own family system or, or your own lives have been damaged by how this doesn't work out. How much can I get away with and still be okay? Do you see how this works way past marriage? Because Jesus is giving us here a snapshot, an example using marriage. But the principle is the same. You know, how close can I get to the edge of immorality and still be okay? How much can I, my, my girlfriend and I screw around and still be okay? How much can I take and still be okay? Do you see? How, how, how bad does the lie have to be in order for me to be a liar? Where's the edge? And Jesus is just saying, I think about this and so many other things. If you're worried about the edge, you've already lost the middle. Come to the center. Live with integrity. Choose and then act on your choice to love. Feelings of love are going to come and go. They are as, as fleeting as, as, as the clouds. So don't, don't, be, don't be banking on them 
as motivation. And they're nice. Attraction is nice. I get that. I, I, and, and still to this day, when Judy comes into the room, my heartbeat goes up. I love that woman. Right? I really do. And sometimes I just want to kill her. <laughs> Anybody? Okay, come on. And, and women? Oh, liars. Okay. <laughs> See, that's right at the edge there, you guys. <laughs> now, what's that about? Well, that's normal. That's normal. How can anybody think like she does? How, how does this work? I'm logical. I'm clear. I'm precise. I'm an excellent communicator. Right? <laughs> I don't need any peanut gallery today. So, 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 but, but, but do you see? No, that's not how it works. We have been bound together as one. I don't get to serrate at the edges. I have to learn to live with the gift I have been given, which, by the way, over 35 years, has demonstrated itself to be absolutely remarkable. Remarkable. The mystery that is my wife is deeper and more profound to me today than it was when we first got married. I had no clue the power and the beauty of the person I was marrying. I had no clue. This is why I just about blew our marriage up. Why? Why I'm so grateful for Jesus to say, get back into the center. Learn to be married. Learn to be centered. Then you don't have to worry about the edges at all. You can drive 100 miles an hour down the center of the road and never worry about the cliff at all. Ever. That's what I want. That's what I want. Fair-proof your marriage? Real easy. Love your spouse. Deeply, passionately, truly, by choice, and then by action. Do you see? Um, How do I want to end this? This way. I suspect there are some of you who are hearing this word and saying, I get it. That's what I want. I'm not really good at it right now. (coughs) But that's what I want. And we'd like to pray for you. And whether it's about marriage, or whether it's about your capacity for relationships down the line, this is the kind, I realize how I have blown up previous relationships I've been in by pushing too hard in the wrong directions. I want capacity for something else.